Hello and welcome to The Planning Podcast. I'm Richard Kimblin and with me are Hugh Richards and Howard Leithhead, both barristers at Number 5 Chambers in the Planning and Environment Group. Today we're going to go on a whistle-stop tour through 30 minutes of what has been happening during the course of the last 12 months, presented thematically. Hello and good morning to Hugh and good morning to Howard. How are you? Yeah, morning, Richard. Uh, fine, thank you. Sitting in sunny Worcestershire. Morning, Richard. Morning, Hugh. All good here. It's great to be with you. We're going to turn to an update. Hugh, I think we're going to kick off with you first. And you have been thematic. You've managed to get together a, a number of cases decided in recent times under particular topic headings, which is fantastic because I can then arrange those in my own mind and remember them. You're going to kick off with uh, some cases we've had on uh, officers' reports. That's right, Richard. And uh, what we're going to be talking about today is challenges to local authority decisions to grant planning permission, so judicial review. An awful lot of these challenges centre on the written officers' report to committee or the officer's delegated report. You and our listeners will be aware that the legal test there is, is that report seriously misleading? And if it was, did the error go uncorrected? And there have been the usual crop of cases in the last 12 months where people have argued whether or not a report has been seriously misleading. Um, A couple of themes emerge. One is just check that the consultee's responses are accurately summarised, because if an officer's report advises a decision taker that somebody has said that something's acceptable or could be acceptable or not acceptable, and that's not accurately reported, then that could be seriously misleading. And the other thing I think is this, Beware of advising that something should not be taken into account at all because it's not a material consideration. That's a very uh, hard-edged piece of advice. Far better, in my view, to advise that something could be taken into account, but just to give it no weight on the circumstances of these case, which is a much easier position to defend if challenged. Thank you, Hugh. That is such practical advice and approach. And for those listening in, they can have a squint at the notes, I suspect, and we'll pick up on cases of Kinsey and the Whitley Parish Council case, which would tend to support both of those propositions. Yes. And also what's now an infamous bridge to nowhere case, the Ashchurch Parish Council case, you'll recall that the officers in that case were told not to take into account the impacts of the houses that were going to be built on the other side of the bridge. And the Court of Appeal said, well, that's not right. It's plainly a material consideration, the impact of the houses being facilitated by this bridge. You've got to take it into account. But what weight you give it, of course, is entirely a matter for the decision taker. The problem in that case was, was that the officers had told the members, do not take it into account at all. It is not material. Uh, And that was where they went wrong. Okay, let's turn then to some cases which decision takers should particularly bear in mind. That's our next series of topics, really. And it's the identity of the decision taker. That's illustrated by the Romeo Dance Academy case. In the council scheme of delegation, officers were delegated authority to determine planning applications in a number of circumstances. But so long as the officers did not think that the decision was, quote, controversial, unquote. 
And of course, officers decided to approve an application that had attracted a serious number of objections, but officers decided that they still had power to determine the application. So they did, and the objectors didn't like it. So they went to the High Court, uh, where they were told that the number of objections, a high number of objections, doesn't necessarily make a case controversial. And that the arbiters as to what is controversial are the officers themselves. It's the officers with the delegated authority who have to decide whether or not something is controversial. And the court would not intervene, except, of course, on the usual Wednesbury grounds, which were not made out in that case. So that's the first case. The second case, Save Britain's Heritage case, Planning Commission granted, objectors disappointed, their solicitors write to the council solicitors complaining about the decision and the process thereof. The council solicitors write back and say, well, these were the reasons for why we granted permission. And a judicial review claim was launched on the back of that solicitor's explanation. Whereas, in fact, the council's own solicitors had not stated accurately the reasons for the grant of permission. The reasons for the grant of permission were found on the face of the permission document itself and in the officer's report. And the court said, you've got to make sure that when you bring a, a high court case, you're attacking the real decision. And in this case, attacking the solicitor's explanation was not attacking the true reasons for granting permission. And then there have been a whole series of cases on due process. Spitalfield's case and the Blacker case they both involved the proper interpretation of the council's own code of conduct for the carrying out of committee meetings. So if you're going to complain about how a committee meeting was conducted, do look at the council's own code of conduct to tell you how the council has told you that they're going to be conducted. And then the last case to mention under this head, case of Wells, again, a local objector puts in uh, responses to an application saying to officers in terms, you must come and see this from my property. Only then will you be able to discern how dreadful it is going to be for me. And the case officer didn't because there had been a previous enforcement case and the case officer spoke to the enforcement officer and the enforcement officer said, well, this is what I saw when I went out to the site. So the case officer said, thank you very much. That means I don't need to go. And the high court said that was all perfectly lawful. Um, or at least uh, not unlawful. <laughs> okay. Now, our next case is interesting for two reasons, and it's the, the Village Concerns and Wilden Dean District Council case. This was a uh, an outline permission for up to 205 dwellings. And the first issue is, well, what does an up to 205 dwellings outline permission mean at the reserve matters stage? And the court held that if you've got an outline permission for up to 205 dwellings, a local authority cannot refuse the details of a scheme on the basis that the up to figure can't be accommodated on the site as a matter of principle. What the court said was, if you want the up to figure, you might have to have a housing mix in terms of size of properties principally, that is not wholly what the applicant wants. So that, for example, you if you get a planning permission for up to 205 dwellings, you can't then insist on 205 five-bedroom houses. You might have to compromise on your housing mix if you want to get 
205 dwellings. If, on the other hand, you want a particular mix that only gets you 200 dwellings, well, that might be what you have to accept. So that was the first point. The second point is as important. The officers in committee, when briefing orally, got into a bit of a muddle as to what the effect was, and therefore their oral briefing was not consistent with the written officer's report. And the judicial review claim sought to take advantage of that uh, in the context of the committee having therefore been misled. But the court said the starting point for any officer's advice is the officer's report. And what's said in the debate needs to be read in that context. However, the judge did say it will help if officers in debate don't contradict themselves with regard to what they say in the officer's report. An example of the courts giving officers a fair degree of latitude when it comes to oral briefing. Your scheme successfully got through committee. There are still a couple of pitfalls that can arise before you actually get a planning commission document in your hands. And the first is illustrated by the Gosea case, Southampton Airport runway extension, Resolution to grant by the committee had to be referred to the Secretary of State to see whether he wanted to call it in. And the Secretary of State said, yeah, well, we should have should make a decision within seven weeks or so. Please, local authority, uh, don't issue the decision notice until we've had a chance as to whether or not we want to call it in. The inevitable happened. The National uh, Planning Case Unit didn't make a decision. And the local authority got fed up with waiting and simply issued the decision notice and the objectors went off to the High Court. And the answer came back from the High Court judge. There was no legitimate expectation. The planning case units, uh, hopes and, uh, and aspirations did not give rise to a legitimate expectation. And the very clear message for objectors is this. If you want the local authority to hold off issuing a permission until the Secretary of State has decided whether or not to call it in, then you need to get the Secretary of State to issue a direction to that effect. A holding direction. A holding direction. Vague, cosy promises or, or, or quasi-promises between the case unit and the local authority don't hold water so far as an objector is concerned. And my very clear advice to objectors is you get a holding direction, a vague promise is not good enough. And then, of course, the other thing that can happen between a resolution to grant and a permission being issued is that there's a change in circumstances, a change in material considerations, and the age-old problem dating back to the delightful Mrs. Kydes. When does a, a decision need to go back to committee? And the answer from the Hardcastle case is only when there are a change in material considerations but those changes might make a difference to the outcome. So there can be changes to material considerations, but that doesn't of itself mean it has to go back to committee. It's only where those changes might make a difference to the outcome. Might make a difference. Okay, that's the test. Yeah. Um, lastly, from me, before we hear from Howard. Bit of 106. Yeah, is, is a, a couple of things on 106 obligations, and they're sort of linked in a way. The first one, Whiteside, was for a tiny little scheme of seven units and a requirement in the 106 for a contribution of £1,500 a unit towards sustainable transport measures. And in the officer's report, there was a discussion as to what those sustainable transport measures might include. 
and one of these newfangled car clubs was mentioned in the officer's report. But the 106 just simply said, here's the money for the sustainable transport measures, and it did not include express reference or requirement to this car club. And local objectors took exception to that and went off to the High Court. But the High Court pragmatically said, well, this is a relatively small contribution. The members will be well aware from similar applications across the borough what these sorts of schemes go to. And although the car club was recommended in the officer's report, it was not required by dint of the resolution of the committee. And therefore, the High Court judge, in effect, let it go as being a, a small scheme and a pragmatic approach required. Contrast that with the University Hospitals of Leicester and Harborough case, where very large sums of money at stake um, in circumstances which is becoming increasingly common across the country, where an NHS acute services trust, that's to say a, um, a hospital trust, says, well, the funding arrangements we've got mean that we have to treat everybody who presents at our A&E department. Uh, and that's based on the number of people living in the catchment area. And therefore, when new housing development schemes are built, more people are coming to live in the catchment area for which we don't get any funding until 12 months down the line when that's taken into account on the, the next round of our funding. And therefore, we want the developers to contribute to what they call a temporary funding gap. That can be a considerable amount of money. And in the Harbour case, as with many other cases, the request for such a contribution came fairly late in the day. Now, Mr. Justice Holgate, who tried the case, said, well, the NHS trust funding is capable of being a material consideration, but it's for the trust to show whether there is a gap, and if so, how big it is. And that in turn depends on how many residents will be new. Because if you're moving from a property inside the catchment area, you're not going to be a new resident. And if the trust can do that, the next thing that the local authority has to say is, well, are we satisfied that they have shown us a funding gap and how much it is? Then that has to be taken into account in the viability calculation. And then if the local authority is satisfied that there is a funding gap and how big that gap is, in a case where there is not enough money in the viability appraisal for everybody's contributions to be paid and a policy requirement for affordable housing to be reached, then the local authority has a planning judgment to make as to where the priority lies for funding. And it would be perfectly legitimate exercise of the authority's planning judgment to place, if it wanted to, the NHS request at the bottom of the list of priorities. Now, there are unanswered questions that Mr. Justice Holgate identifies in his judgment, and they may be answered in another case that's coming along up behind it this summer in Worcestershire. The listing window is end of June to middle of July, so watch this space for another NHS trust funding case later on this year. And I think that that's completes my little contribution. And Howard, over to you for the next topics. Well, thank you very much, Hugh. That wasn't a little contribution at all. It was absolutely great. Let's see whether we can put together a further list of topic areas. I think, Howard, it's going to go something like, let's have a quick look at the way we have to approach planning policy, a spot of nutrient neutrality. Thirdly, some noise 
Uh, we're going to make some noise, aren't you, Howard? Then we're going to turn to two matters which come up once you've got to the point of grant of planning permission. One is in respect of conditions and one is in respect of the impact of SIL. That makes a list of five. That's absolutely right, Richard. Thanks. And first up then, um, sub- under substantive issues, is the interpretation and application of policy. Uh, in Corbett and Cornwall Council, the Court of Appeal considered the meaning of the words immediately adjoining in a development plan policy. The Court dismissed the claim. In doing so, it held that the words in the context of the policy shouldn't be given an unduly prescriptive meaning and that the policy context was relevant. The judge said it was a matter of planning judgment for the decision maker. Well, what can we take from this? In Tesco's stores and the Secretary of State for the Environment, Lord Hoffman said that many of the provisions of, the, of development plans are framed in language whose application to a given set of facts requires the exercise of planning judgment. The use of the words immediately adjacent in the relevant policy in Corbett provides such an example. It's further important to note that while the words immediately adjacent might have the same meaning in another policy context, they might not. The next case is King on the application of Plant and Lambeth London Borough Council. Uh, In this case, the High Court considered the meaning of a development plan policy, which was concerned with the account that should be taken of trees when considering development proposals. The court again dismissed the claim. It held that the claimant's interpretation that the only relevant consideration for deciding whether removal was imperative was whether a tree was in the way was unrealistic. Uh, the takeout from this case is it, it again concerns the interpretation of a particular policy and a particular development plan, but it's worth uh, taking note of the judge's view that the claimant's interpretation was, quote, unrealistic. Policies aren't academic treatises, but practical documents for real-world use. So, Richard, as you mentioned, the next topic up is nutrient uh, neutrality. Uh, and the cases are on the application of Wyatt and Fairham Borough Council. This case was concerned with a challenge to the council's application of Natural in England's nutrient neutrality advice for the Solent when deciding to grant outline planning permission for the construction of eight new houses on a site near to an special protection area, an NSPA. Uh, the Court of Appeal dismissed the appeal and held that the duty required the council to make an evaluative judgment as competent authority, and that the conclusion it had reached as a matter of evaluative judgment was legally sound. The court further held that while the officer's assessment in the report may in part be infelicitously expressed, which is how the court put it, it did not accept that it was unlawful, and it held that there was no failure to comply with the section 38.6 duty. So the takeouts are that the role of the court is not to perform the authority's evaluative judgment, but to determine whether that judgment was lawfully exercised. Uh, this judgment again demonstrates the reasonable benevolence with which the courts will read such reports, as Hugh has already uh, said. Both the High Court and the Court of Appeal were critical of aspects of the officer's report, but ultimately the challenge failed. The next topic is noise. And the cases are on the application of James and Dover District Council. In this case, the claimant was James sought judicial review of the decision of the defendant, a local planning authority, to grant planning permission to the interested party to develop its race circuit in an area of outstanding natural beauty. The court held that the purpose of paragraph, or what was paragraph 183 of the MPPF 2019, now paragraph 188, 
was to avoid needless duplication between the two schemes of statutory control, where the pollution control regimes operate parallel to the planning regime. The judge said that decision makers should assume that nuisance controls should operate effectively. She further said that the council had been entitled to consider the existing use as a fallback position, contrary to the claimant's arguments. The takeouts of these, where a statutory nuisance is alleged to exist on a site, it may be convenient to both the local planning authority and the owners to resolve the issue by the granting of a further planning permission that resolves the issue through the imposition of new planning conditions. But this case demonstrates that it's important not to confuse the separate statutory processes and a local planning authority is entitled to consider the existing situation as a fallback position and is not required to consider what might abate the nuisance in the future. The next topic is conditions. In R on the application of Cathy and Cheshire West and Chester Borough Council, the claimant in this case, uh, Mrs Cathy, lived with her husband in a house which was formerly part of a farm owned by the interested parties. Of particular interest in this case is the approach taken by the judge on how to interpret condition two to the relevant planning permission. This condition required the submission of an odour management plan by the interested parties. The judge referred to the six tests set out in the government's planning practice guidance concerning the imposition of conditions and concluded that the conditions should be read so as to impose no more than, quote, reasonable obligations on the interested parties. As a consequence, the judge said that the council was not only entitled but required to interpret the condition so that it did not impose a disproportionate or unjustifiable financial burden on the interested parties and that the council did not therefore consider immaterial considerations by taking into account the interested parties' business model and financial circumstances. And so, Howard, from that, what do you think people should be taking away from Mrs. Is it Mrs. Cathy's case? I think what this case shows is the, the application of the concept of reasonableness in terms of conditions could have implications beyond the discharge of planning conditions. So, for instance, the authorities suggest that a court is entitled to consider the validity of a planning condition in a prosecution brought under Section 187A for the breach of a breach of condition notice. In this context, the implication of Cathy would appear to be that a court could consider not only whether the condition itself was reasonable, but also reasonableness in general when interpreting the condition. It seems to me this is a new idea. That's great. The other point which you raised about what might come up post the decision to grant is this civil topic. And you're going to take us to the Braithwaite case in the Court of Appeal. In, in this case, it's on, on the application of Braithwaite and Melton Meadows Properties Limited in East Suffolk Council. The appellant developer had previously successfully challenged a revised demand notice, which included a surcharge for late payment of SIL. When the council then issued further liability and demand notices, the appellant attempted to challenge these by means of judicial review. The Court of Appeal held that the initial liability notice, notwithstanding its defects, remained valid and that the judicial review claim was out of time. In terms of takeaway points, uh, this case emphasises the general public law principle that a decision is valid unless or until it is challenged. In the planning context, this often arises in cases where a permission has been granted in error 
The judgment further emphasises the reluctance of the courts to extend time to bring a judicial review claim. And Richard, there's another SIL case, which is Gardner and Hartsmere Borough Council. In this case, a self-built development was not built out in accordance with the planning permission and a separate retrospective planning permission was granted for the development. Uh, the High Court held that the SIL self-build exemption didn't apply where planning permission had been granted retrospectively. The fairly obvious takeout is that if contemplating self-build development, there is a clear incentive for obtaining planning permission first and building out in accordance with that permission. Well, Howard, thank you very much. We have been taken there on a tour, a tour de force in fact, in just 30 minutes and covered so much territory. Thank you very much indeed to you both. Have a great rest of the day. And Howard, you're away to Malvern Hills. Mustn't detain you any longer, but thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Richard. That was the planning podcast from Number 5 Chambers. Thank you for being with us. Come back again. We'll be here again soon. Goodbye.